Well, here we go again. Welcome to Listen Closely with John and Chris. This is, wow, this is episode number three. We're still at it. Uh, I am John out here on the East Coast, and I am joined by Chris out there on the West Coast. All right. I'm good. How are you, John? Uh, never better. <laughs> Third episode. They said we wouldn't get here. I know it's a it's a tree trifecta it's whatever you want to call it um, so it's the holy trinity here we go and uh, here, here we go I I do think that uh, it's a rather fitting one too and that, um, we're really going uh, all out third episode by rolling out what uh, I think for me is is undoubtedly in my top ten albums of all time and I'm, I'm going to go out and let's say it's probably in of all time as well. And I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm going to, I don't want to get hyperbolic here, but uh, I might put it at number one for me. Um, Jesus, that's intense. It's going to be a real, it's going to be an emotional half hour for me, John. It, and we're only 30 seconds into it. So this is, uh, <laughs> wow. If this is the foreplay, I can only imagine what's next. Um, so on that note, why don't you uh, do the honors, Chris, and uh, tell our five listeners, um, <laughs> what we will be dissecting on this episode of Listen Closely. Uh, we are going to be looking at uh, the seminal 1991 album from U2, Actung Baby. Absolutely. And it, uh, wow, just the title gets me excited hearing it, Actung yeah. Baby, you know? And um, yeah, it's. Uh, Wow, it's hard to believe that this album's almost 30 years old. It was released in November of 1991, which is insane. Um, we just, you know, before we really do a deep dive here, <clears throat> and we could spend hours talking about this album, but, you know, we're, we're limited to about 30 minutes. I mean, just, just off the top of your head, I mean, what's, this, what's the significance of this album for you? What, uh, what, what do you find special about this album? Uh, I mean, to me, I, you know, part of it, I'm not saying it's the greatest album ever, but I think it's my favorite album because it's a tremendous album. Um, I can find very little, very few flaws with it. And it came around, you know, we were what in our freshman year of high school. Correct. Um, so, you know, it came along at a very formative time and it was, it was dark. It was brooding. It, didn't let you off the hook. Um, and it just had a sound that was kind of a departure for you too. And in some ways was unlike anything that I'd ever heard, I think to that point, I don't, I don't think that's, that's uh, stretching it too far. I don't either. I, I think it was so unexpected. Um, I think really it's a, the album is the sound of a band reinventing themselves and trying to get as far away from what they sounded like previously and what their perception was. It was almost, in my opinion, uh, U2 becoming an entirely new band for a new era. You know, they, they start recording the album in the early 90s, in 1990. And uh, after taking a couple of years hiatus, and they look different. They, they sound different. They act different. And I remember people thinking, you know, there were diehard U2 fans who, did you remember this when when the album came out in the subsequent uh, Zoo TV tour? People really thought that the band sold out. Uh, oh, totally. Yep. You know, they just didn't get it. 
Yeah, no, they didn't. I remember everyone saying, uh, we want to see Bono waving the white flag, you know, um, like he did in their earlier, much more earnest, um, you know, what some would say preachy days. Um, and this was a complete departure. You're right. It, you know, after Rattle and Hum, um, a lot of critics described their Rattle and Hum tour as, and the movie as, as pretentious, you know, they're, Kind of exploration of American music done um, by a bunch of Irishmen. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so they started to get this rap as being uh, very <clears throat> self-absorbed. Um, you know, just overly earnest. Thought they were saving the world here, um, and then Acting Baby comes along, and it's it's big and it's brash and it's loud. Um, and it was a little bit of them saying, all right, you know, you guys think we're, we're pretentious. We're, we're getting too, too artsy here. Well, we're going to go big. We're going to go real big. We're going to just play up the classic rock and roll persona here. And they did. And they did. And they did it. I mean, they, they went all in by doing this. And, you know, one of the things I love about it is if you look at the, the snapshot of what the popular music scene was like in 1991, I mean, these guys sort of coming out of left field in the sense that they hadn't been heard much, uh, have, hadn't been heard from much in a, in a couple of years. And they come back with a vengeance in late 91 and they're going toe and toe to toe against grunge, hair metal, mm-hmm. hip hop, all of which is huge at this time. And, and they come out with this album. That's, that's anything and everything. And I, I just think it's incredible, you know, not coincidentally, I think um, the recording of the album occurred in Berlin right as the wall was coming down. Those were the early stages. Mm. And um, I think that influenced the sound and the mood considerably. Mm-hmm. But also, too, is uh, it's been well documented that the band was not getting along when they convened uh, to start writing songs and recording. And uh, some have gone as far as to say they were on the brink of breaking up. And, and Bono and The Edge were really pushing for the new sound. And they had brought Daniel Lanois in as the producer. But um, really, the band, they were at odds with one another. Uh, and, and the story goes they had to bring uh, good old Brian Eno out to Berlin, mm. you know, who had, of course, done plenty of work in Berlin in the 70s with Bowie. And mm. uh, they bring Eno in, and he brought this sort of zen-like calm and uh brought all these great ideas and from there the the magic just eventually happened and um again as we said it it was it was the the perfect album for reinvention and i don't know you know they pulled off this amazing reinvention i don't think they were ever able to do it again and i don't think they'll ever be able to do it again in their career it was colossal the way that they became a new band it was, and I, you know, it's it's really, it's unfair. But I've been for the last twenty, well, really since Europa, which was what ninety three, ninety three, yes, um, which was sort of an extension, I would say, of Acton Baby. Absolutely. Um, really, for twenty five years or so, just been waiting for them to top this, which is just unfair because I, I don't think you can. Um, no, and I think they've had some some great moments. Um, yeah, but they, yeah. I, I don't think they'll ever top this. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I think you really have to 
well, if the album is just amazing start to finish, but you have to look at this, the staying power of the singles. And when you listen to songs like mysterious mm-hmm. ways, even better than the real thing, these were all singles. Mm-hmm. Not only do they hold up well still, but you will still hear them on some FM radio stations. The one that are kind of the adult alternative stations, I guess uh, you'll hear them at you know, the supermarket. Uh, you'll hear them uh, shopping at the Gap. And these are singles that are 30 years old. And yet, if you would look at singles that they would release later down the road, <clears throat> when was the last time you've heard Walk On? When was the last time you've heard Sometimes You Can't Make It On Your Own on a radio station or when you're out shopping somewhere? Those were good singles. Those are great songs. They just didn't have the staying power of the ones off of Octung Baby. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, spot on. And I think the, the critics took to the album rather quickly. Rolling Stone magazine said that um, in their review after the album was released, you two had proven that the same penchant for epic musical and verbal gestures that leads many artists to self-parody can, in more inspired hands, fuel the unforgettable fire that defines great rock and roll. <clears throat> if that's not high praise, I don't know what it is. Uh, yeah. Q Magazine, I think, uh, summed it up best. They said, uh, Octung Baby is U2's heaviest album to date and best. And it goes on to praise the band and the production team for making music of drama, depth, intensity, and believe it, funkiness, which is true. It's a very <laughs> sexy album. Um, very much. And Rolling Stone Magazine, uh, Ranked it in the top 500 rock albums of all time. It put it at number 63. I would go significantly higher, but Rolling Stone, I think, uh, always tries to be politically correct. Um, But, you know, coming Mm -hmm. from them, 63. Now, we, as we always do now, if you had to pick a weak moment, either a song that you feel doesn't match up with the rest or just something about the album in general that you would say isn't quite there, the deer of the, of the album. Could you find one? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's not much. There's not much. But if I had to pick one, one song, it's, it's not even that I really don't like it. I just don't think it quite lives up to it. I, I'd go with The Fly. Um, <laughs> What are you uh what are you laughing at there? I'm laughing because great minds think alike. And and for me, <laughs> you know, my my weak moment or, or what I question about this album was the sequence of the singles that they released. And I know that a moment ago I was praising the singles uh and for their staying power, but the fly was actually the first single released off of Octung Baby, and it was released, I think, um maybe a, a month before the album was. And I get it. They wanted to pick mm. a song that probably sounded the least like something off of Joshua Tree or Rattle and Hum. And like you said, it's a good song, but I don't think it's quite a par with some others. And I certainly wouldn't have released it as the first single, particularly when you look at the singles that would be subsequently released. In this order, and just hear me out here on this. Mysterious Ways follows the fly. 
for singles being released. And, and remember, there are music videos to accompany all these. Mm-hmm. Has, I think, three different music videos. Even better, the real thing. Uh, music video directed by uh, Kevin Godley of 10CC. Who was that right? Wild Horses. Oh, outstanding, outstanding single. And Until the End of the World. So really, I think when you look at those and you look at the fly, fly's good, as you said, but it just can't quite compete with the others. Yeah, to be honest, I didn't even realize that the fly was the first single. I, I thought it had been mysterious ways. That's how much of a of an impact that made on my memory there. Absolutely. It is surprising because the fly really didn't doesn't hold up quite like mysterious ways, quite like one, even better than the real thing. Yeah. You have a you have a sleeper moment a track on the album that sort of uh, you know there are times when you like it more than others maybe it took a little while to grow on you a crossroads so this is not my, on the album this is not my favorite moment this is the the sleeper moment this is the sleeper moment you know it's the moment that you know when a certain mood catches you you absolutely have to hear the song and you absolutely love it yeah. If I'm going to go with a sleeper pick, I, I'm going to go with trying to throw your arms around the world. Jesus. Um, are, we, <laughs> are we in agreement again? Yeah, we are. Uh, we're, we're two for two at this point. Uh, wow. Well, this is here. Your rationale behind this. Um, most of the album comes at you and just it just overwhelms you emotionally. Um, you know, it goes deep and it goes uh, it goes often to some very deep dark places and that one you know they they give you a little breather and they kind of reel it in a notch um let you catch your breath a little with that one it's just a nice melodic beautiful song i couldn't have said it better i think um it sticks out like a sore thumb because it doesn't have the, the darkness surrounding it that a lot of the other songs do and it's, uh, it's a song that's simple, sweet, tender even. And uh, it's definitely out of place. And I think it kind of looks ahead for the band because I think that in subsequent albums, they would always throw one song on the album that w- or, or two songs that were not unlike trying to throw your arms around the world. I think on Zerope, you had Baby Ace, which could sound a little mm. like it. And then if you were to skip ahead several years and go to um, All That You Can't Leave Behind, you could look at something mm. like Wild Honey. Wild. Totally. And totally, yeah. That kind of serves the same purpose. I think it's a... It's, it's, it's the ultimate hangover song that you've, <laughs> you, you've gone out and torn up the town on a Friday or Saturday night and you've probably said and done some really foolish and regrettable things. And uh, <laughs> you wake up the next morning and you are very vulnerable and you call up your girlfriend or, or whomever you have at that point. And, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with the nasty hangover and you just want the companionship and you want some comfort. And that's, that's sort of what the song is. That's sort of what the, the purpose of the song is. Absolutely. And at that point in the album, you need it. It's, you know, everything before and after is so, so intense. Um, Very. I think you, you really need it. 
Oh, after my God. Yeah. I mean, it's after. Um, it's almost as though you call the girlfriend during trying to throw your arms around the world and you're feeling better. And then all of a sudden you feel the urge. You absolutely have to vomit and you get viciously ill. <laughs> that's really, that's uh, three songs on the that's, album. Yeah, that's pretty spot on. Um, <laughs> could we could we talk for a minute, um, please? You know, I, I know it's a podcast, but uh, just visually, the way that you two changed here. Oh my god! You know, going from the uh, <laughs> the, the sort of trying to be cowboys with uh, Joshua Tree and Rattle and Hum. Um, to coming out in, you know, Bono in the head to toe leather with the wraparound sunglasses. There's a, a bunch of, you know, pictures in the album and the liner notes of them in drag. <laughs> yes. um, it's, it's so over the top and amazing. And, and the, the album cover is a nineties version of the Rolling Stones exile on main street, where it's just that collage of various random images, but you're right. Mm. It has pictures of them in drag, supposedly, the original CD issue has a picture of Adam Clayton naked. Uh, and there were only yes. like those went out. Supposedly Adam Clayton was packed. I mean, he's the biggest member of the band, supposedly. Is um, that right? It, supposedly. If, if, you know, I read a very interesting thing. There was a book that was written about them in the mid-90s called You Took the End World. And uh, Bill Flanagan, a rock journalist, basically followed them around for three years, four years. And they talk about what was really the catalyst for them changing their image. And I think it was on the Joshua tree tour. They were on a stop. And Sinatra invites them to go see his concert. And he's playing sand, wherever the hell he was playing at that point. And, you know, they, you two sitting there at a table or wherever, and, you know, they, they're dressed like you two was in 1987 and Sinatra gets up uh, between songs and you know, he finished singing, uh, I don't know, I've got you under my skin or whatever. He says, I want to uh, point out some fellows tonight who are uh, the best band in the world and they're a great group of young men. I just want to thank them for coming to the concert tonight. And so the spotlight goes on you too. And everyone stands up and claps. And supposedly Sinatra then makes a remark that says something like, now if only someone could teach them how to dress. Oof. So, ouch. So maybe that had something to do with it. I, I don't know. Um, I'm going to go out on the limb here and guess that your album's best moment is also going to be uh, mine. But let's, let's hear what you have. Uh, I went a little different on this one. Oh. This is not necessarily my favorite song, but my uh, my favorite moment um, is the end. Uh, the very end. Love is Blindness ends it, which is, again, not my favorite song on the album, but it's such a bold move to put that last. Um, you know, this album, they kind of ease you into it with uh, Zoo Station, even better than the real thing. Um, then they get into the real deep, dark stuff. One until the end of the world. Who's going to ride your wild horses? So cruel. Then they kind of ease up on you a little bit. You know, Mysterious Ways... Um, it's a pretty intense song, but it's, it's fun. It's fun. Yep. And then we, like we talked about trying to throw your arms around the world and you start, you know, remember this is, this is 30 years ago and 
we were albums weren't nearly like the kind of postmodern type things that you'll see today. So at this point, I think you're expecting like, all right, we've been through the tough stuff. Now we're going to kind of end on an up note. Oh no. Oh no. You get ultraviolet, uh, <laughs> which is maybe my favorite song on the disc on the album. I'm, I'm not quite sure, but one of them, which ultimately is, is uh, I think a, positive song but it's one that takes you through a lot of dark places it does well it does super intense you get acrobat which is just sort of seething um both just angry at the other person in the relationship and angry at yourself and then you know you think maybe they'll let you off the hook at the end and they don't they They give you a song that's called love is blindness and ends, love is blindness. I don't want to see. Won't you wrap the night around me? Oh, my love, blindness. Uh, it's, it's, just, it's just piling on. And I love it because it, it subverts every expectation that you'd have. I think you touched upon something there that it, it's not necessarily the best song on the album. I wouldn't even put it in the top three or four songs on the album, but it really is a moment there. And it's those the, the haunting last chords during Mm. the the kind of fade out and it's yeah there's no way organ music exactly there's no way they're going to let you off the hook easy and they don't uh and that's what makes it all all the more harrowing i think Uh, Mm -hmm. for me i think i I went a little more you could probably have predicted this but for me and i I really had to think a lot about it because i could have gone with acrobat as as the uh, best moment on the album because you're right it's just such a seething angry vicious song Ultimately, I went with So Cruel. And mm. I really feel that So Cruel was unlike anything you two had done previously. And even unlike anything they've done since, it's really this sweeping mini opera. And it's drenched in this amazing synth and strings and, and, and the funky bass line from Adam Clayton. And uh, Larry Mullen yeah. Jr.'s drumming is just so on point. You know, one is the album's most famous ballad and probably the band's most famous ballad. But mm-hmm. I think So Cruel is the album's best ballad and probably the band's best ballad. I'm going to go out on the limb and say that. Uh, I, it's hard to disagree. It's hard to disagree. I have a real soft spot for Who's Going to Ride Your Wild Horses, but I, I think So Cruel is probably the better song. It's more haunting, I think. And, and you know, the lyrics are just so intense we're cut adrift we're still floating i'm only hanging on to watch you go down my love yeah (sighs) yeah it doesn't really get much better than that no it's incredible and it's got that you were spot on when you called it uh semi-operatic um it is it has this very melodic tone at times but uh man it just hits you right in the gut it does and i never ever tire of hearing that song and you know i one is an amazing song but i i'm fine without without hearing it and, and the same thing with even better than the real thing but uh when so cruel pops up in my spotify mix i i never skip it it's just uh it i'm constantly finding new things in the song that i truly love some 30 years later I- I totally agree i mean one is an incredible song the lyrics are phenomenal but yeah i don't i rarely get the urge to listen to one uh there's there's something about it where i can admire it as 
a work of art almost, but I don't, it doesn't resonate with me as much as something like So Cruel. I think because you, you touched on, you know, you can go back to that one and listen to it over and over and you notice new things every time. It's really complex. It really is. Really is. Yeah. Now, 30 years on, almost 30 years on, you, you listen to the album. How well do you feel that it captures the zeitgeist of the era? Does it, how, how good of a snapshot of, of 1991, the early 90s, is Octung Baby? I think in a lot of ways, it's, it's pretty spot on. Um, you know, you're kind of right in between like the, the cheesy pop of the eighties and the grunge of the early to mid nineties. Um, and at that time, you know, you had the, the fall of the Soviet union, the Berlin wall coming down. You mentioned that they, they created this album in Berlin. Uh, it's kind of a tumultuous time for the world. Um, and I think the sound of this album really captures that. I, what, what do you think? I agree. I, I think the sound captures it. it. It captures a tumultuous time for the world. It captures a tumultuous time for the band in that they weren't mm. getting along. As I said earlier, uh, the edge was going through a divorce from his first wife. And I think a lot of that's reflected in the album. Uh, I don't know that it, it's so hard to perfectly sum up early nineties musically yeah. and because there's so much going on. You had the Seattle grunge scene, you had hip hop, you had guns and roses who were arguably the biggest band in the world at that time. And mm. classic rock as really just a, a go-to for everyone. So it's hard to say whether or not this one album can perfectly capture the vibe, the zeitgeist, but I, if not this album, then I don't know what else would. Uh, Nirvana, never mind, maybe. But for my money, this is a much better album. Um, agreed, agreed. I think you're right. I think it, it might not sum up the whole, the whole zeitgeist, but it, it really gets at a key part of it. In the closing moments, do you have a moment or two, a moment or two, or somewhere? where the album pops up in pop culture or in, in your memories that uh, something about the album that really resonates with you on a personal level. I just know that when, whenever things get bad in my life, this is the album I go to, um, <laughs> to just sort of wallow in it. Uh, you know, anytime there's a breakup, um, you know, any sort of personal trauma, uh, I just go head first and sort of abuse myself with this, torturous album here jesus you need to go easier on yourself next time yeah <laughs> but it's great i mean it, it you know i mean that in the best way it's therapeutic um how about you for me it it really sums up it's the definitive soundtrack to my high school years you know you and i are the same age we're less than two weeks uh, apart in our, with our date of birth um yeah. or just over two weeks apart rather um and unlike other albums that I listened to incessantly in high school, like Beatles Abbey Road or Avalon by Roxy Music, this album was one that was actually released and peaked when we were in high school. And I think mm. that that really makes a difference. And it, I think, helps sum up the angst and 
tumultuous times of, of high school. There's a song on this album, all 12 songs that could relate to pretty much any emotion, but at the same rate, it's not some lovesick teenager's diary. It's a, it resonates with a high schooler just as it resonates with someone in their forties. And I think for me, the band in the nineties was such a refreshing alternative to the run of mill, run of the mill, classic rock, hair metal, gangster rap, and then like the jam band roots rock revival that you'd see in the early to mid nineties with the likes of blues traveler, fish, Dave Matthews band, stuff that just never did it for me. For me, there was U2 in the 1990s, and that was as good as it got. And an Octung Baby was as good as it got. Absolutely. Absolutely. Closing moment. Is this a perfect album? I think it is. I mean, you know, there's other points that are weaker than others. Absolutely. We talked about some of those, but you know, I, I don't think in terms of overall substance, you can really uh, nitpick too much with this. How about you? I agree. Spot on. This album's perfect. Uh, even the bad songs, and there are no such thing, but even the, the not quite as good songs are still amazing. And that's all the time we have for this episode. Uh, tune back in soon where we will dissect another classic. And hopefully it's not one that Chris goes to every time he's having a really bad day. <laughs> Chris, thank you for, uh, for this and uh, let's hope some people listen. I'm going to go listen to some Hanson uh, Mbop and cheer myself up. Much better idea. I'm going to go put on some Blues Traveler. <laughs> Sounds good. Be well. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.